You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we pray what we just sang, that we have a great need of you, and we ask you would speak to us, that your word would not become or seem to us just a cold history or book of stories, but would be telling us who you are, that we would see in every page a reminder of who you've revealed yourself to be. We would see with our eyes the pointing to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the source of life, the redeemer of sinners. We ask you would speak to us by your word this morning that we might be challenged, that we might be encouraged, that we might be equipped. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning, River City. We are in the book of Exodus. Um, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 7. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around um, and can get one to you. To follow along. Uh, we have a, a lot to cover today. And so I was going to apologize about that, um, but I've decided to not apologize. So I am not sorry that we have a lot to cover today, um, but I will say buckle up. Um, we have, we're going to try to cover six chapters of Exodus, and uh, some of it's really hard-hitting and fast-moving and exciting. Um, so hopefully you find it as thrilling as I have. Uh, <laughs> remember, as we read Exodus, we're looking for three kind of big-picture ideas every week. I want us to, the reason I bring these up every week is because I want us to to approach, particularly the Old Testament, but I want us to approach the scriptures in our own study, in our own reading, week in and week out, with similar sorts of questions. You might take different approaches, and that's fine. This is not the only way to read the Bible. But especially as we're in the Old Testament, I want us to ask these questions as we read. What am I learning? What What is this telling me about who God is? He's revealed himself through his word. So what am I learning? What am I seeing about who God is? Two, what am I learning about what it means to belong to him? To be his people. That's a huge theme in Exodus. And I want us to see that particularly as we read it. And three, what am I seeing? What are we uh, experiencing? What are we noticing about redemption? God's plan of redemption which we see in Exodus in tangible ways, which we'll get to this morning in our text, of people being literally removed from slavery, being redeemed from slavery and bondage, but how that actually is also pointing to something even greater, a a clearer redemption, an eternal redemption in Jesus. So I want us to ask those questions when we come to the Texans, which is why I'm reminding you week after week of those three things. Now, today I said we have a lot to cover. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 7 all the way to the end of chapter 13. 
And so if it gets a little long and you need to get up and stretch in the middle or get refill your coffee, uh, no judgment for me. That is A-OK. Um, so here we go. All right. Our title today, if you will, is this. I am your God who rescues from death. One of the repeating themes from Exodus is God revealing himself. Here's who I am. And today I want us to see and hear God say, I am your God who rescues from death. Now our text today is essentially broken up into two main components, main parts. The plagues that God brings upon Egypt in, verse, in chapters 7 through 10. And then the Passover, which is a smaller section, but equal or greater in weight, if you will, that gets explained and then carried out in chapters 11 and 12. And then the section closes in, in, um, in the end of 12 and the beginning of 13. Kind of the result of these plagues and this Passover is the Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt where the people leave slavery happens here in our text today. And it's a section that's very small. It just is like, and they left, essentially. Not quite. We'll get to that. But that happens here as well. And so the whole encounter here that we'll read, that we've already begun a little, but that we see in, in clear detail, graphic detail, between Moses and Pharaoh. This showdown, if you will, this battle between Yahweh, the I Am, and the, the lesser gods of Egypt. It's all about control. I think that's ultimately what is happening here. There's a battle for control. Who actually controls creation? Who has control over the hearts of the rulers of nations? Who has power over life and death? Now, the challenge is this isn't just a power struggle between two warring nations and the gods that they worship. This power struggle, this fight for control, is something that you and I feel here in our own hearts. It, it might not seem as, as big or as, as grand or as strong as two nations battling it out. But, but we wrestle with this in our, in our lives every day. This very issue of control. Control over our own security. Control over our own health. Control over our own lives. If we are honest, I think we will find that actually this is our battle too. The English poet William Ernest Henley closes his famous poem Invictus. I don't know if you're a poetry fan. Um, like this. This is the last line of his, uh, this poem. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Maybe you've heard that line used. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, this particular poem is 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 about not being a victim of, of circumstance, right? Not breaking under pressure, being confident and unafraid in the face of danger and trial. And those are things, at least to me, somewhat encouraging and honorable. I think in some ways that's a, a worthwhile attitude to have. And here's what I mean. I confess, I find much of our current culture of the West in which we live far too saturated in an idea of woe is me. There's nothing I can do. It's just who I am. Right? I fall victim to that. And so rather than a humble but hearty confidence, right? Not a confidence in self, but a confidence in God who can give us strength in order to endure, right? 
We tell our kids this all the time when something is difficult, like, you know, picking up their laundry. You can do hard things. Right? And I want, to, I want us to feel that. Like, we can do hard things. And yet, not to sound like a cynic, but the longer I live, the more I realize how little control I have over life. Not identifying as a victim of fate, that's not what I'm saying, but that we are participants in reality. And here's where it becomes just undeniably clear to me of how little control we have. That clearly there must be another master of our fate. Clearly there must be some other captain for our souls. And that is when I am confronted with the reality of death. One pastor I I heard said this, the greatest affront to to our desire for control is death. Death is the ultimate undoing of our cherished illusion of control. By way of illustration, let me give you a real-life example. Friday, July 30th, 2021, a little over a year ago, a soon-to-be senior in high school whose name is Ezra was taken to his local emergency room because he was in pain and was very sick. What they soon discovered after a couple of days of tests was a very particular form of leukemia. Chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, Those things seemed to work on the front end, but quickly showed themselves to be unsuccessful. They were looking at a second bone marrow transplant, but there just seemed to be complication after complication. Fast forward to about three weeks ago. Ezra has a growing fever and lots of pain. And while they were waiting for admission to a very promising medical trial in another state, a neighboring state, They discovered an infection that had affected his brain. And neither medication nor surgery was able to relieve the issue. And on Thursday, September 29th, Ezra breathed his last on this planet. Now, from all that I know, I don't know the family personally. I've met the mom once. They're a part of Acts 29, our church planning network. From all that I know, Ezra loved Jesus, had an active and vibrant faith that was bearing fruit in his life. And in the midst of seemingly crushing grief for his family, losing a son and a brother, God's grace continues to be sufficient. And they can grieve with hope that one day the son and brother that they lost is whole and healed and in the presence of his Savior. And yet... As many of us have also experienced this kind of loss in some way or another. And if we haven't, can I just lovingly say, just wait. Right? Like, we will all experience this kind of loss. The reality of death is a sobering reminder of just how little of life we can actually control. And that's what I'd like to dig into a little this morning. As we read this text. That we live in a constant battle for control. We see it Uh, very acutely when we have to deal with death. But what we have to realize also is that that battle, that struggle, is happening in small ways all the time right here in our hearts. We live in a constant battle for control. But I think what we find in this text is that God rules over all things. All things. 
And it is actually through death that he rescues from death. Now, because we're covering so much ground today, we're going to read a couple of passages as anchors, as we've been doing, and then work through the larger chunk of text together. So two longer passages and then one shorter one we'll read. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8, is where we'll begin. 8 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's move ahead to Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month for you shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to which, what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its heads, it he, excuse me, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Finally, go ahead to uh, Exodus 12, verses 33 through 36. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done to Moses, done had Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is God's holy and perfect word. 
We live in a constant battle for control. But God rules over all things and through death rescues from death. As I said, our text is kind of broken up into two parts. We have these plagues, specifically plagues one through nine, each one showing God's power and his supremacy. And then we have this tenth plague, which culminates in Passover. Both the death of the firstborn, of all those who did not listen to God, and the saving, the not death, of the firstborn, of all those who trusted in God, and by faith were covered in the blood of a lamb. So first, let's, um, let's look at these plagues. We're going to move through them fairly quickly. Um, that God rules and rescues through plagues. Uh, the passage opens, we read it, with a kind of a prelude. Moses and, and Aaron before Pharaoh. There's, uh, they follow what God tells them. He casts his staff down, it turns into a serpent. Uh, Pharaoh's magicians do the same. The staff of Aaron swallows whole the staffs of Pharaoh's magicians. And Pharaoh, even seeing all that, doesn't matter to him. And that kind of sets the stage for this epic fight that's going to ensue. The plagues begin and, and starts with the first one, plague number one. Start, uh, we see it in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, where the water in the Nile is turned to blood. The Lord tells Moses, take his staff that turned into a serpent, go to, in the morning to the Nile to meet Pharaoh. Well, he's out having his little morning stretch, if you will. Look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. It shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And so Moses and Aaron did what the Lord commanded. Aaron stretched out his hand, struck the water, and it turned to blood, and it stank. Now, some people have said this could be a natural phenomenon. You've heard of a, a red tide, maybe? Uh, toxic algae will grow in certain parts of the water and kind of spread out and, and come in and fill a bay with uh, kill fish, make people sick. But this isn't merely that, and here's why. Because not only did this affect the water in the Nile in real time, but Moses tells us in Exodus that all the water that had pooled away from the Nile in ponds, and in tributaries, and in fact, water that had been collected days before in vessels of uh, clay and stone and wood, like water jugs for a family, were also turned to blood. All of the drinking water in the area, whether it was in the Nile, or it was in puddles, or it was in drinking vessels, was turned to blood. This was something altogether Different. And this is where this power struggle now between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt really begins. The Nile was a source of life for the Egyptians. They were dependent on the Nile flooding its banks every year. And what it did is it did that is it created rich soil along the, the flooded banks that would be just perfect for growing crops. So along with the fish and the source of fresh water and probably a little bit of commerce up and down the Nile. It was a source of all of their agriculture. And the Egyptians worshipped the god of the Nile, Hopi. 
the God of the inundation, the God of the flood. He was credited with the flooding of the Nile so that they would be prosperous and have food and healthy crops. He was responsible for life in the river valley. So whether by trickery or by demonic power, Pharaoh's magicians also turned the water to blood so that the people had to dig down into the ground for water. They couldn't take water off the Nile. And Exodus says that it remained that way for seven days. And so even though his people suffered, even though God was showing his supremacy over the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them. That's plague number one. Plague number two, frogs. So Pharaoh didn't listen, and the Lord told Moses to have Aaron stretch out his hand over the waters, and frogs would swarm everywhere. Here's how he describes it. In their houses, into their bedrooms, on their beds, and in their ovens and kneading bowls. Any of you make your own bread? How'd you like to go make bread this afternoon, and there's frogs in all of your equipment? And you open up your oven, and there's frogs in your oven. Or better yet, You try to crawl into your bed, you lift up the sheets, and it's filled with frogs. I'm sure some of you are going to have issues now tonight. You're going to, everywhere you look, you're going to check under the comforter, right? And that's exactly what happened. Now, the Egyptians worshipped a god named Heket. She was the Egyptian goddess of fertility. She was depicted... The body of a woman and the head of a frog. Yeah. Again, associated with life. And again, Pharaoh's magicians could kind of do the same thing. So in this back and forth, they're like, we can do that too. We have power. And they somehow multiplied frogs by their secret arts. But the challenge was they could multiply them, but they couldn't get rid of them. But the Lord can, and he did. Pharaoh called Moses and said, Would you plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, please? Would you plead with Yahweh to remove the frogs? So Moses said, Okay, pick a day. Pick a day, Pharaoh. When would you like the frogs gone? Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. And Moses said this, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. In verse 13 of chapter 8, The Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died in houses the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Lord's like, oh, I'll take care of the frogs. I'm just going to kill them all. The only ones who weren't dead were the ones that were in the Nile, where they were supposed to be. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses. That's plague two. Plague three, gnats. Exodus chapter 8, 16 through 19. Lord told Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out his staff and strike the dust of the earth. And gnats, like a dust cloud, spread out over all of Egypt, affecting human and animal. You've probably walked through a small swarm of gnats, right? They fly up your nose. They get in your mouth and ears. If you've ever played Little League Baseball as a kid, you're standing out in right field and you're like... You ever watch the kids holding their glove above their head in the middle of summer? hoping that they swarm around their glove and not their face. Just me, right? Now multiply that by like a million, right? They're everywhere. The Egyptians worshipped a god named Geb or Jeb. 
I don't know. I didn't ask if it's GIF or JIF. Who was the god of the earth or god of the dust? We're not fighting about that, by the way. And this time, the magicians of Egypt were stumped. They didn't know what to do. They could not recreate this plague, this miraculous work. Surely it's the finger of God, they said. But even still, even though they were powerless, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He still would not listen. Plague 4, flies, Exodus chapter 8, 20 through 32. So the Lord caused flies to swarm. The houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Now, this summer here in Fargo-Moorhead has been fly-heavy, right? Fewer mosquitoes, praise Jesus, lots of flies and spiders. I don't know why that is. El Nino, global warming, I don't know. All I know is that there's lots of flies. But we're not talking about filling our houses and laying, like covering the ground like a carpet, right? The Egyptians worshipped a god called Kepri who was one of the lesser sun gods. There's a whole pantheon of gods, and he was one of the lesser ones. We'll get to the primary sun god in a bit, but Kepri was depicted as a man with the head of a fly. That's right. So when all of these plagues are happening, it's likely the Egyptians are crying out to their gods. And nothing. They're getting no help. And here the plagues take a turn because now they're no longer affecting the Egyptians and the Hebrews the same way. The land of Goshen, where the Hebrew people lived, was not affected by swarms of flies. Verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And the flies are so bad, Pharaoh says, fine, go and worship your God, Moses. You can take your people and worship your God. Just don't go very far. Moses prayed, the flies were removed, but Pharaoh immediately went back on his word, hardened his heart, and did not let the people go. Plague 5. Livestock. Exodus chapter 9. We've moved into 9 now. And this one is squarely directed at the Egyptians. The Lord brought a sickness that only affected the livestock of the Egyptians. Horses, donkeys, camels, herds of cows, and flocks of sheep and goats all the livestock of the Egyptians dies. Think about it. All of the livestock. This would have been economically devastating. Like an entire segment of their food supply and their economy dead. I mean, stopping up fish in the Nile for a week or getting clean water for a week would have been bad, but you can recover. But losing all of your livestock for a nation. Devastating. The Egyptians worshipped a goddess named Hathor, who had the head of a cow. She was depicted with a disc of a sun disc kind of between her horns as a sky goddess, and she personified motherhood and provision. And here she was no help. And even though his nation was being economically devastated, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. You'll hear this theme over and over and over again. Plague number six, boils. The people and animals of Egypt, whatever animals are left, are now affected with boils and sores all over their bodies. For the Egyptians, the goddess Isis, 
would be no help to them. Isis was the goddess of magic and medicine, of health. And as the people suffered, she had no power. So much so that Pharaoh's own advisors refused to be in the presence of Moses anymore. When Moses shows up, they say, we can't even, we don't want to be here. Plague 7. Hail. Exodus chapter 9, 13 through 35. The Lord raises the stakes here. And through Moses, directly addresses Pharaoh for his arrogance and pride. Right now, up to this point, Moses has been telling Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go. And here he says, you have exalted yourself, Pharaoh, above God and his people. And because of that, God says this, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in, the Egypt, in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. God told Moses, tell the Hebrews to bring all your livestock into shelter because the storm is coming. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, likely lightning, down. And it struck down, it killed every man and beast that was still in the field. It killed every plant of the field and broke every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where God's people were sheltered away, where the people of Israel there was no hail. So it's likely that Pharaoh and the Egyptians called out to the sky goddess, Nut, which is a sweet name for a, if you're going to name gods, whatever you want. I think naming one Nut sounds good. To no avail. Powerless compared to Yahweh. And Pharaoh this time reacts differently to the hail. Look at uh, verses 27 and 28 of Exodus chapter 9. This is Pharaoh's words. He says, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Seems like a turning point. Maybe it's happening. Moses goes out of the city, stretched out his hand, and the storm and hail stops. Verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. It got real bad because not only are they economically devastated because of livestock and the people are just hurting, full of sores and sickness, now their agricultural crops are also decimated. It's bad. Pharaoh tries to bargain with God and then when it gets better, he goes, just kidding. And, and we, never, we never bargain with God like that, right? Am I the only one? Okay, just checking. Plague number eight, locusts. Chapter 10. Whatever crops were left, some hadn't come up yet, some were a little late, and so maybe there's still hope for barley or for wheat. Whatever crops were left after the hail were about to be destroyed by locusts. Locusts are very angry grasshoppers. That's how I've heard them described. Locusts are grasshoppers, but not all grasshoppers become locusts. Of the nearly 8,000 species of grasshopper that exist, only about 10 of those species are likely to morph into swarming locusts. And that's what they do. Certain species of grasshopper, which are pretty solitary creatures, you don't normally see them hanging out in groups. They are solos, except when they're not. Certain species will kind of group together, and they literally physiologically change from green to yellow to black. And they cluster together into chaotic swarms and just decimate crops. It's almost like they go insane. 
And that's what the Lord promises. And it's possible that the Lord was, in a sense, calling into question or challenging the Egyptian god, Seth. He's the god not only over storms, but the god over chaos. There was going to be an epic storm of locusts who would destroy whatever crop was left in the field. Verse 14 says of chapter 10 that they came up and covered the earth. Not a green thing remained. Not one piece of healthy growth of plant life remained. Pharaoh again calls Moses and says, I have sinned against the Lord your God. I have sinned against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So Moses goes, he pleads with the Lord. A wind comes up and sweeps every locust out to the Red Sea. We'll visit the Red Sea next week. But Pharaoh did not let the people of Israel go. Plague 9. Exodus 10, 21 through 29. Darkness. Now this one didn't have a warning like the others. The Lord just straight up tells Moses, stretch out your hand, and he does. He doesn't have Aaron do it. He stretches out his hand, and darkness fell over all the land of Egypt for three days. Verse 23 of Exodus chapter 10. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So this wasn't just the natural phenomenon of a, of a solar eclipse for three days. This wasn't strategic cloud cover. Egypt was dark where you couldn't see anything for three days. Remember, no street lights, no nothing. But in the land of Goshen, there was light. The supreme deity of Egypt worship, Egyptian worship was the god Amun-Ra, the sun god. They believed that Ra not only created himself, but was the creator of the entire universe. He was the god of the sun. And so to make his final point, that Yahweh alone was lord of creation for three days the Lord made Egypt sit in helpless darkness. And the way it's described is a darkness they could feel. I think we get just a slight taste of that here in the fall when we're outside in the backyard and the sun is up. And then it goes down, like behind the trees or behind the horizon line. And all of a sudden you're like, whew, got cold. It went from the warmth of the sun to the deep cold nothing for Egypt. Pharaoh tries again to bargain, but this time Moses says no. Pharaoh's trying to say, well, what if you did it this way? What if you went, but you didn't take all the livestock with you? What if you left some of your livestock behind? And then, you know, Moses says, no, it will be as the Lord has said. And so Pharaoh says this to Moses, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord has devastated Egypt. Devastated them. And yet, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He still resists. But God isn't just being malicious. God's motive, if we can call it that, the why, is stated over and over again. Listen to the reasons God is saying, I'm doing these things. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Be it as you say, Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. I will send my plagues on you so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power. Why? So that my name, the Lord says, might be proclaimed in all the earth. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. I have done these signs that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians that you may know that I am the Lord. God is showing his rule over all things. And what he is doing is he is correcting the knowledge that the people have about who God is. He is giving accurate knowledge of who he is because true knowledge of God frees us from the falsehood and lies of idol worship and self-worship. God is saying, this is who I am. And you need to know who I am because if you know who I am, that will free you from believing the lies about false gods and about yourself. And you might think, yeah, but I don't, I don't worship Isis or Hopi or Ra. So what are we talking about when we talk about idol worship or idolatry? RCI is actually taking a class on idolatry. And so I've heard this phrase now every week for like the last three weeks from Brad Bigney. In fact, afterwards, you can ask Josh, Joshua Molden to give you the hand signals that they use to kind of remember this, this phrase. I was going to have him come up and do it, but we don't have time. Here's Brad Bigney. An idol is anything or anyone that captures your heart, mind, or affections more than God. An idol is anything or anyone that captures your heart, mind, or affections more than God. It's trusting in or giving allegiance to something or someone in exchange for deliverance, security, or fulfillment. Idols offer freedom, but deliver slavery. This is what they do. So I have to ask myself this week, I'm asking you, join me in this fun exercise. What are the things or people that capture our hearts that capture our minds, that capture our affections? What are the things that we trust in to save us, to give us a sense of peace, to give us a sense of security, to give us a sense of control? See, Egypt needed their gods exposed for what they were, false hope. Indeed, Israel needed to have their idolatry exposed, their faith in God renewed. And we too need to have our idols exposed and our faith in God renewed. We need to be delivered from ignorance and idolatrous worship of everything else that is not God. God rightly judges false gods and those who worship them. And in this way, God shows his rulership and his rescue through these plagues. This judgment exposes what is false so that what is true can be seen. But God doesn't only pass judgment on false gods. God's righteous judgment also falls on a substitute. And that's the way God rescues. So through nine plagues, God, we see God's rule over all things. And here in this tenth plague, we see something unique. This is our second and final point. There's only two points. First one's long. Second one is sort of long. 
Passover. The tenth plague is threatened in chapter 11 and carried out in chapter 12. We're not going to read all that this morning. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, the Lord tells the people what is about to happen. He explains to them the entire process for the Passover. Here's what you do. Here's why. Here's what it means. Trust me. Not just for that one night of Passover, but also what this one night will mean for God's people from now on. He is reordering their calendar. This is the first day, he says, of a whole new way of thinking. A whole new life, a whole new identity starts here, God tells Israel. Each household is to take a perfect lamb and to kill it. To take some of its blood and with a branch, paint some of it on the doorpost and the lintels of the house. And when the Lord himself would come through Egypt that night, part of this tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, he would take the life of every firstborn of every house, every animal and every human, unless there was the blood of an unblemished lamb over the doorposts of that house. And then, and only then, would the firstborn of that house be saved. Israel was being challenged to trust God and embrace the substitute that God had provided. All of the firstborn probably deserved death in the same way. And the only reason Israel was saved, because God interposed, placed between his judgment and his people, a substitute. See, death isn't just universal misfortune. It's not just a part of life. Death is a universal inheritance which has come into our existence because of sin. And sin, as an affront to God who is holy and pure, must be dealt with. Death isn't something that just happens, like, well, I guess we all just got to experience that. No, no, no. Death is an inheritance we share because of sin. And sin must be dealt with. And here's how the Lord deals with the sin that leads to death. He provides a substitute. An unblemished lamb would be killed. And the blood of that lamb would stand between the firstborn and the judgment of God. Now this is, I think, a crystal clear picture Not only of the first Passover that rescued the firstborn in Egypt, but was foreshadowing a greater and a final Passover where because of the blood, not of a a lamb, but because the blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, his blood would now stand between God's judgment and God's people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed. You were paid for. Blood was shed for you already. There has been a substitution made for your soul. As God the Father has appointed Jesus, the lamb, to die in your place. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 29, we read that at midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The firstborn of Pharaoh, heir to the throne, all the way to the captive, the prisoner who was sitting in a dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock. And with a great and horrific cry all throughout Egypt, Pharaoh says, get out. Go out from among my 
people. And here's the sobering reality of these plagues. Pharaoh had chance after chance after chance to repent. And yet, it isn't until he has to face not the death of crops, not the death of animals, not the death of his national economy or his workers in the field. It's when he has to face the death of his own son. Only then does the veneer over Pharaoh's control over his life and his universe crack. And he surrenders unwillingly to the mighty hand of God. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps you're seeing that God has been patient with you. That you've been given chance after chance after chance. And he's today, even yet today, he is calling you to repent. And rather than trusting in yourself to be good enough, you can trust in a substitute to make you right before a holy God. If that's you this morning, I would love to talk with you today. And for you, sisters and brothers who've been following Jesus and as you're listening to this and you're asking, Yash, what, what are the things that, that, that draw my attention and my affection, the focus of my mind and heart? Let me just ask this. Why does it often take us so long to see our own idols? Maybe that's a rhetorical question we just need to sit on. I've been sitting on it for about four days now. Why does it take me so long to see my own idols? Why am I so slow to confess and repent of self-reliance? And not out of guilt. Because there's actually freedom, there's victory and covering in the Lamb. That the way out from under judgment, the way out from under guilt and under shame and get out from under our self-reliance is not staying in shame and covering ourselves in shame, but by being covered and washed by the blood of the Lamb. We don't have to cover ourselves as our parents did in the garden when we recognize and we are called to account for our sin and our idol worship. Instead, we embrace a substitute and we are covered instead by his blood and we are washed clean. God's people are told to eat this meal with their sandals on and their belt on and their staff in their hand and to eat quickly. Why? There is a trust that they are to display as they sit down for this meal. They're actually believing that God is going to do what he said he will do. So you eat with your sandals on. And then while it was still night, Moses and Aaron began to lead the people out of Egypt. They left before the bread for the day even had time to rise. So it was early in the morning. And the Egyptians sent them with clothes and jewelry of gold and silver. They just wanted to be rid of them because what of what God had done in Egypt. And the Passover that they practiced became an opportunity for worship. Then in chapter 13, Israel is called to remember. God says, consecrate to me, set apart, bless every firstborn. Why? To remember that the firstborn was either killed or redeemed. Remember this day, Exodus 13, 3. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt. Because now the people are no longer defined as slaves. They are no longer defined as outcasts or homeless or lesser. The people are now defined by the Passover. They are identified and defined by who they belong to. They are identified by how they were rescued. They are a redeemed and a rescued people. That is now their primary identity. 
Chapter 38, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 8. We're not to 38 yet. Chapter 13, we can go to 38 if you want. You guys got time? You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This is now your identity that you will pass down from generation to generation. Why are we here, Dad? Because this is what the Lord did in providing a substitute and by rescuing us and bringing us out of Egypt. Why did God tell Moses to tell the people to remember? Because people forget. (laughs) Because we forget. I think we reach for idols because we think they can save or help us, forgetting that God has already shown us his power to save. We reach inside ourselves, looking for strength here, forgetting that it's actually God who is strong. And it's God who made us. So it's okay for us to be weak, and he can be strong, and in that we can press forward and do hard things, right? We attempt to identify ourselves by other things, by the things that we worship, the things that we value, forgetting that in Christ we are already identified by the blood of the Lamb. And this is where we see God defeating death through death. Brings us back full circle as we close. I quoted that pastor at the beginning of this sermon, death is the ultimate undoing of all our cherished illusion of control. So how does this help us? See, God doesn't defeat death by removing it, but through death, killing it. The firstborn aren't saved by avoiding death, but by embracing the death of the Lamb. Egypt had no choice but to surrender to God, because all their false idols showed themselves to be helpless and worthless. Israel had no choice but to surrender to God, because their only hope was in the blood of the Lamb. So when things seem crazy, we tend to grasp at anything and everything to gain some semblance of control in our lives. And often what are missing in these moments is remembering. Remembering that God rules over all things. That there is nothing, not hurricanes, not cancer, that is outside of His sovereign rule and reign. And we remember that God rescues, that He offered His own Son His own son to die for sin so that we, his adopted sons and daughters, don't have to die for our sins. And because Jesus rose again from death, we know death is not the end. Death has now been defeated. So we can live and grieve by faith. That we can be afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The death we experience here is not the end. We believe that. This is one of the reasons we take communion regularly. It's not merely introspective for our personal reflection, but it's a marker, a reminder of our shared identity. We share a Passover identity. We look back, We remember God has provided a lamb whose blood covers us. His blood pays for our sin. But we also look around around us remembering that we are a we. We're an us. A people together. We share an identity as a covered people. And we look forward to the fulfillment of the promise of the Passover lamb. We taste of it here 
And we, now, we know now it is only but a taste of something even greater to come. In Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John records a picture. Satan's been throwing down, thrown down all his rebellious angels. He accuses God's people. He accuses the brothers, John writes. And this is how the accuser, Satan, is ultimately defeated. Listen to Revelation chapter 12, verses 11, 10 and 11. John writes this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Satan is defeated. How? By the blood of the Lamb, which we've been talking about all morning, and the word of their testimony. What is a testimony other than a remembering and a retelling of what God has already done? Brothers and sisters, today is an invitation to relinquish control and to trust in the Lord who is the master of our fate, who is the captain of our souls. We live in a constant, constant battle for control. But God rules over all things and through the death of Jesus rescues us even from death. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are uh, quick to forget. So I pray you remind us of what you've done. That as we come to the communion table The work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, would stare us in the face through the bread and the cup. And we would believe that we are indeed forgiven through it. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That you'd remind us that we share this identity together. We are all shaped now, blood-bought people. And that it is through your blood and through the sustaining grace of God, sustaining our testimony, that we make good confession. And we will see the ultimate defeat of all of your enemies and our enemy come to full fruition as the lamb that had been slain stands in victory. Father, would you be kind through your spirit to bring conviction to areas of our lives where we fight for control, that we would instead approach you with open hands relinquishing our grip, laying those things down before you and trusting you to carry them and carry us. Encourage us now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.